we're going to take a look at our scripture text for the morning. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. That's found on page 889 of the Pew Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. So the Gospel of John, chapter 4, page 889. Now the heart of these messages that we've looked at over the last several weeks deal with the fact that salvation has a tremendous impact on the lives of the believers. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Sam shared from the topic of a friendship reformation. And he used as his text Luke 19, 1 through 10. And one of the important points that Sam brought out in his message last week is a great segue into what I want to speak about this morning. Sam spoke about a radical transformation. Jesus is teaching us that following him is something more than just a Sunday morning experience. It's to have a radical transformation in one's life, like Zacchaeus experienced. And as believers in Christ who have been radically changed from who we are to what God would have us to be, we must all ask the question, what does God desire from me? What does God desire from me? Now, that's a very important question. It's a life-changing question. It's a question that should be at the forefront of our minds, of our thinking, of our thoughts, of our actions. It certainly was that for Zacchaeus. It turned his entire life around. And the question of the morning is, has it turned your life around as well? You must ask the question, what does God desire from me? And that's the, the subject that we're going to look at this morning, worship. What would God desire from me? And, and I believe that God desires from us more than anything else to worship him, to give glory and honor and praise to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and now, if that is true, if that is true, to give glory and honor and praise to God. If the very people who should be the most grateful are guilty of not giving God their very best, this must deeply grieve God's heart. The entire chapter of, of John chapter 4 provides background on the topic of worship. And I truly encourage you to read it and contemplate it deeply over this coming week. For this morning, we're going to take specifically a look at verses 21 through 24. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. And here's what these verses say for us. Starting at verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is seeking, God is desiring such people to worship him. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, most of you are very familiar with the story that leads up to this point of our passage for the morning. Jesus has left Judea and is on his way to Galilee. But he takes an interesting shortcut. He travels through the region of Samaria. And in doing so, he has a divine appointment with a woman. A woman who will not only have her life on earth forever changed, but her eternal destination as well. In his interaction with the Samaritan woman, Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah, the one that they have been desperately waiting for. Jesus would meet this woman at her moment of greatest need, and she, he would give her water so that she would never thirst again. And as a result of Jesus revealing the secrets of her heart, she believes, and through her testimony, many people come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's truly a remarkable story of a personal transformation. Now, I want to dig a little bit into one of the profound theological truths that's contained in John chapter 4. And it has to do with this concept of worship. What does God desire from me? What does God desire from you? God-honoring worship is not something that we make up on our own. It's too important to God that worship be done in a manner that pleases him. Listen again to what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. To worship God properly, we must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does it mean, spirit and truth? You know, as the people of God who have the spirit of God, we are able to know how to worship God. We don't need to guess at what God wants. In fact, Jesus points out that the Jews knew what it meant to worship God. Conversely, he also points out that in regards to worship, the Samaritans had gotten something drastically wrong. I'll come back later on to talk about wrong worship. But let me take a moment to define worship. Uh, in doing so, it will provide a very helpful framework for us to talk about the theological truths of what it means to properly worship God. Now, no one is free again to define what godly worship is. Rather, we should be guided by the revealed Word of God to build our understanding of what genuine, acceptable worship is in the sight of of our Heavenly Father. To do otherwise 
To do otherwise is to take a chance at exciting God's wrath. And that's never a good thing to do. Worship must be regulated by the revealed word of God. God's word gives us clear insight into what he desires and how he desires to be worshipped. The word of God regulates our worship. We must worship as God demands. Now, when we start to think about what is worship, worship could simply be responding to all that God is with all that I am. And indeed, that starts to paint the picture for us of what genuine worship is. But I think we need to go just a little bit deeper to understand in light of Scripture what God expects from us in the area of worship. One of our best-known preachers of the day, John Piper, says that true worship is valuing or treasuring of God above all things. True worshiping is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. And again, that starts to help us to zero in on a good definition of what worship is. But but to help us deal with the subject of God-honoring worship, I really am convinced that another good noted preacher of our day, Dr. John MacArthur, has done a very nice job of bringing together in one statement the biblical essence of worship. Here's what John writes. John says that worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Let me say it again. Worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, and our words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. Worship, on one hand, is very simple. Yet, on the other, it's very rich, and it's not a simple matter at all. It's a matter that we must contemplate deeply, and we must make sure we deal with it as a very serious topic. To do otherwise is to potentially open ourselves up to God's wrath. And as I said earlier, that's never a good thing. And that's why I find MacArthur's definition so compelling. It blends together in a very straightforward manner how the truth of Scripture deals with our understanding of worship. Jesus' statement in John 4.24 provides two key elements that must be present when we worship God. Verse 24 says again, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We need to think about what Jesus is trying to convey when he speaks to the subject of spirit and truth. Let's look at the first of those two elements, spirit. The element of spirit deals with the concept that our spirit is the fundamental aspect 
of who we are as beings. We are spiritual beings, and Jesus is dealing with that aspect of who we are. Hopefully in your Bible, take a look at your Bible, the word spirit is not capitalized. That's because Jesus is not talking about the Holy Spirit. If he were speaking to the Holy Spirit, spirit would be capitalized. But in this case, it's lowercase, and that's very important. Because as a man, as a person, for everyone that's here this morning, we are spiritual beings. But not only are we spiritual, we also have an immaterial part of us as well. We are both immaterial and material. And those two aspects combine together to make us a complete being. The two work together. And it is the immaterial part of man, our spirit, that is held responsible for everything that we do as material beings. So when MacArthur speaks to our innermost being responding in praise through our attitudes and thoughts, he's speaking to the fact that the essence of biblical praise is to engage the deepest part of our being in adoration of the living God. Our spirits interacts with the truth of whom God is. Our entire being, both material and immaterial, responds accordingly. It goes something like this. Our spirit reveals the wonder of who God is based on the truth of Scripture. And as a result, our entire being responds in adoration and obedience. It's a truly beautiful experience to have our innermost being respond with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. You know, just as our innermost being, our spirit, is critical to worship, so is the Spirit of God. For Jesus proclaims in verse 24 that God is spirit. And in fact, in just a few moments, we'll see that each member of the triune Godhead is involved in this chapter in the topic of praise. But let's talk a little bit about why is God's spirit? What is the emphasis that Jesus is bringing forth by noting that God is spirit? God is spirit speaks to the essence of who God is. One of the reasons that we sometimes have difficulty worshiping God as we should is because our knowledge of the essence of who God is, is poor. And that's not all your fault. Part of the fault lies with the fact that from our pulpits today, we have far too many preachers that are not extolling the virtue of our holy and righteous God. But let me tell you, we serve a mighty and holy God. We serve a God who loves us, 
who cares for us and thinks about us and claims us as his own. How you conceive of God in your mind impacts your worship of him. To put it another way, our thoughts about God will directly impact the quality of our worship that we offer to him. A poor understanding of God, poor worship of God. Rich understanding of God, rich worship of God. A rich understanding of who God is will drive you to give him glory. The biblical requirement for how we should think about giving God glory is, is written throughout the Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When we come to church, we ought to do so with a mindset that has contemplated the very nature of who God is and what he has done. Every intention of our being should be to worship God for his glory. This morning, you should come to church with a mind that has contemplated deeply, giving worship to God. Every morning that you are blessed to open your eyes and to face a new day, at the front of your mind should be the thought of how will I worship God today? God demands that there is nothing else in all of creation that surplants worshiping him as the priority of our lives. It is important and it's impossible to worship God without understanding who God is. So God as spirit is a very important aspect of understanding who God is. That's why Jesus brings it up in this passage. As a spirit, it is truly impossible to contain God. God is everywhere, and everywhere there is God. Please note this truth. You cannot come into the presence of God and not worship. Jesus is making a profound point by declaring that God is spirit and that it is impossible to escape his presence. Throughout his, his life as a man on earth, Jesus understood fully well that he was never separated from the presence of God. That, that's what King David spoke to in Psalm 139. I'm sure you're familiar with Psalm 139. Verse 7 of Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the othermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. We are always in the presence of God. And as Disciples of Christ, we should know more than anyone else that we exist in the presence of Lord God Almighty. And as such, we should enter into his presence with worship. 
Just like Brother Larry said this morning from Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And that's how God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, as we look back at our text again, there's another interesting truth that Jesus puts for us in this passage. Jesus zeroes in on what it means to worship God because who God is leads directly to what God does. Who God is leads directly to what God does. In verse 21, Jesus refers to God as Father. Jesus said to the woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Think about what it means to reflect on God's activity as Father. Who God is determines what God does. Think about God's activity as Father. In the economy of the triune God, it is God the Father who initiates the plan of salvation. It is God the Father who looks upon his children and sees their greatest need, the need for a Savior. It is God the Father who loves his children so much that he decides to send his only son to die for them. And why is God the Father able to do all of this? Because he's God Almighty. And he is able to do all things that are consistent with his divine nature. It is God who's our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us and meets all of our needs. That is why he is deserving of all of our praise. Again, look at how Jesus responds to worship in this passage. You know, chapter 4 of, of John's gospel gives evidence to both the divine nature of, God, of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus. We must never forget that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. And both of Jesus' natures are on display in this chapter. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. What was Jesus' physical condition? He was weary. Jesus was tired and worn, just like we are at the end of a busy day. However, when the opportunity presented itself to engage in an expression of worship, Jesus, in spite of his physical condition, was up to the task. Our minds should always dictate our actions, not our physical conditions, especially when it comes to worship. It is just sad when born-again believers in Jesus Christ regularly, 
worship to second-class status just because they don't feel like it. Worship should be the priority of our lives. Given the opportunity to worship our Lord, we just need to shake off whatever else is on our mind and give him praise. Jesus was physically tired, but the desire of his heart was to worship God. Jesus' divine nature was on display in this passage as well. He was able to look into the heart of the Samaritan woman and know exactly her spiritual condition. This morning, Jesus knows your spiritual condition as well. And just as in the case of the Samaritan woman, Jesus is offering to you water so that you may never thirst again. And and when you drink of this water, you will truly be able to give God what he desires, worship. You know, the the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune God, also plays a critical role in worship. We are not able to worship God without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 11. And therefore, it is only He, the Holy Spirit, who can lead us to truth of what, and that truth of what it means to properly worship God. Jesus taught in John 16, the role of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to all truth. Without the Spirit guiding us, we will never worship God in a manner that pleases Him. Now look, the Bible is full of examples of people who have attempted to worship God in a manner that was not acceptable to Him. And I don't have the time this morning to go through each and every one of those examples. But there is a, there's something that's common in many of them that I want to highlight this morning. And it's this. Anytime we come to worship God, we must offer Him our very best. Anytime that we come to worship God, We must offer him our very best. You know, I think that's an area that grieves God. And it's the tendency of his people to give him their leftovers when it comes to worship. To do so is to be guilty of one of the most offensive sins against our holy God. Just think. This is the God who has saved you from an eternity of separation from his love and his goodness. And we have the gall to not give him our very best in worship. Now, we don't have any type of worship police here at West Park, okay? There's not a person authorized by Scripture, in Scripture, to go around determining if you have given your best to God. God will address directly with you 
if we have given him our very best. He'll do that just fine, and he doesn't need help from me or from you. But think about this for a moment. If you truly and sincerely ask the Holy Spirit, if you are giving your best to God, he will answer you in spirit and in truth. In fact, you should be asking that question right now. Are you giving your best to God in worship right now? When you rolled out of bed this morning, did you give God righteous praise by committing this day to give him your very best? Now, that brings me to another very interesting point. Too often, we act as if the only time we need to give God praise is when things are going well for us, when he's blessed us or delivered us from some kind of bad news. That's a sorry reason to worship God. Only when we're getting something from him. Instead, instead, we must learn that even in the valley of the shadow of death, we are to worship God. I absolutely love what Brother Job has to say for us in Job 13.15. Job 13.15. Here's what he says. This is what Brother Job said in the midst of all of his distress, with everything breaking loose around him. Here's what Job had to say about his God. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Wow. You could preach off those. That's a wonderful attitude of what it means to worship God because we know that we can trust him. Do you know that you can trust God? He's a trustworthy God. And that's the spirit of worship that should motivate all that we know to be true about God in spite of our circumstances. Even in the midst of our deepest troubles, we know that we can trust God. So that brings me to the second point that I I want to share with you this morning. Uh, Worship. What is it that God desires from me? And, And here's the second point. How are we to worship God? God desires that I know how to worship him. So once again, let's turn to the Bible for guidance on this question. Because the Bible presents for us all that we need to know for life and godliness. There are multiple places in scriptures, uh, in our scripture, that points to the various acts of worship, of how we worship God. Uh, one verse in particular gives a clear outline of how we are to worship God. And you ought to turn to it this morning. It's Hebrews chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Here's, here's what it reads. Through him, then let us continually, underline the word continually in your Bible. Let Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice. Underline the word sacrifice. 
offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. How do we worship? With our lips and with our actions. As we worship God with our lips, we are commanded by Scripture to continually offer praises with our lips. The words that come out of our mouths should always be an offering of praise and worship to God. Certainly, as we join in the singing of psalms and songs and spiritual songs, we are praising God with our lips. That's one of the reasons we need to understand that the choir is not up here to sing songs to us or for us because we like this type of music or that type of music. The choir's role is not to perform for us according to our likes or dislikes. Rather, the choir is here to help us collectively sing songs of praise to the Lord God Almighty. And I'm so grateful for our music ministry under the leadership of Pastor Doug at our church here because that's exactly what they do. Singing is a wonderful expression of praise to and adoration of God. The object of our singing is to acknowledge His name. And we need to be very careful that the songs that we sing here give a clear testimony of who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. To the degree that we sing songs that are true to who God is, every believer, now listen to me, every believer should join in, should join in our singing with gusto and energy. Doug should not have to stand up here and beg any of us to join in the singing of these glorious songs to our Lord. It should be a very part of who we are, our spirit, our spirit. The essence of who we are should motivate us to join in together and sing the songs of Zion. But not only do we worship God with our lips by singing appropriate songs, every word that we speak from our mouths should bring glory to God. You need to be aware that every word that you have ever spoken will be judged by God. God will judge them for their worthiness. That's the essence of what Jesus taught in Matthew 12, verses 35 through 37. When we talk, we ought to be careful in thinking about the words we say and how we say them. We are given voices to edify others and to glorify God. That should be the object of our speech. It is an act of worship. Just think about the fact that God is aware of every word that we say. God is in our presence. I need to think. You need to think twice about what comes out of your mouth. Are your words aimed at hurting, destroying, 
tearing down one another? Beloved, these things are not what represent a worship of our God who desires to worship him in spirit and in truth. Colossians 4, 6. That's another memory verse you ought to have in your Bible. Colossians 4, 6. It says, let your speech always, underline the word always, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We need to praise the Lord with our lips. That's one of the key aspects of how we worship God. But Hebrews 13 also teaches us that we are commanded to worship God with our actions. And that may indeed be the most comprehensive aspect of what it means how to worship. Everything we do is an act of worship before God. Let me read our worship definition again. Worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our words, based on the truth of God as he revealed himself. Our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our words. All that we do is an act of worship. Worshiping is our innermost being, our spirit, responding with praise for all that God is through our actions. When you wake up in the morning, The priority of your day should be focused on how am I going to glorify God this day as my act of worship. That's a challenge for us. But as the true worshipers of the Lord God Almighty, it's a challenge that we must embrace. We are created to worship God. Mark this down. God will ask you, why worshiping him has become such a low priority in your life. We were made to worship. That brings me to my, my last point concerning worship. What does God desire from me? And God desire, desires that I know when to worship. God desires that I know when to worship. Now, it's, it's fairly, it should be fairly obvious that if we know what worship is and we know how to worship according to God's word, then when to worship should be self-evident. And here's the answer. Every moment that we draw our breath, we ought to worship. Our lives are an act of worship. That's the essence of what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1. It's the essence of the passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You are spiritual beings who have been born of God's Spirit, which now makes you accountable as a living sacrifice to God to worship Him. In the very life that you live, you are to worship God. Just as Jesus was a living sacrifice, you are a living sacrifice to God as well. You are to strive to be holy and acceptable to God in every moment that you live on this earth. Now, of course, when we talk about when to worship God, there are some special times in our lives when we worship God. One of those special times is corporate worship. It's, it's an example of what we call public worship. That's when the body of Christ gathers together in one place at a certain time to join together in an act of worship. That's what we're doing right now. This is corporate worship, a special time where we come together and worship. This is not just worship that we do once or twice throughout the week. This is just an express, a special expression of a life that is full of worship. West Park has one of its core values, the concept of wholehearted worship. This is a core value of our church. And here's what it says. We desire to cultivate an environment where people personally encounter Jesus during corporate worship. I hope I can get an amen to that. We also believe this worship must flow out of a life lived daily for the glory of God. So we come together at this special time, but it's just a reflection of the daily lives that we live for God because we are living sacrifices. Encountering Jesus during our gathering of corporate fellowship is just a very special time of expressing our love for God together. And we need to examine our worship service, our time when we gather together, to make sure that we are honoring God, honoring his word. We need to do all things decently and in order. That's 1 Corinthians 14.40. Certainly, as individuals, God has blessed each one of us. And we come together collectively to worship him. And we do so in unity. Individual expressions of worship that interfere with the unity of the body worshiping together are simply not acceptable. That was the issue the Apostle Paul was driving at when he addressed the Corinthian church in chapter 14. Ecstatic tongues had gotten in the way of the corporate body coming together for worship. And the apostle was saying those things ought not be. We cannot abuse our individual freedom in a manner that is disruptive to the corporate worship experience. 
when our actions draw attention to ourselves and create an atmosphere that distracts from God, we need to examine that. Here's the bottom line. We need to always put others first in everything that we do. And when it comes to worship, especially corporate worship, we are here to worship God together. Now, let me uh, uh, just highlight another aspect of, of corporate worship that I think is very important. Hebrews 10.25 says, and here's a command directly from Scripture. So this is not something that we are making up to compel people to do what they otherwise would not want to do. This comes directly from Scripture. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are commanded to habitually gather together to encourage one another. That's what it means to edify one another. Everything that we do in this service should be aimed at edification so that people would get to know God more and know each other better. It's edification. And we must come together on a regular basis to worship God. But sadly, so sad, the evidence is showing that more and more believers are falling into the habit of not gathering together to worship God on a regular basis. Well, you might ask the question, well, what does regular mean? Regular for you may be different than regular for me, right? Well, let me, let me just throw this out for your thoughts and contemplation. You know, there are at least 52 opportunities a year to worship God. 52 weeks in a year, at least once per week, there's an opportunity to worship God. Yet the evidence is mounting that believers are falling out of the habit of meeting together as commanded by Scripture. There's one mainstream U.S. denomination that recently took an in-depth study into the worship habits of its members. And you know what they found? They found that the vast majority of their members attended worship on a regular basis less than 52% of the times available to them. 52% as a score. You have to ask the question, do those people understand the expectations of Hebrews 10.25? It's a sad reality that that, tr that trend is not only true for that denomination, but for a lot of our churches as well. The Bible tells us otherwise. Attendance is not optional. Now, before I get into too much trouble, let me leave you on this thought, leave you with this thought. When I was in school, scoring a 52 on a test would get me an F. <laughs> I don't know if the new math or the new whatever has changed that, but 52 out of 100 was a failing grade. Now, I pray that scoring an F on your worship attendance report, God, that the Lord God Almighty is keeping is not acceptable to you. And like I said, I better leave that alone. <laughs> Let me just move on to talk about another special time 
of worship. And that, I call that private worship. It's a time where we as believers set aside on a regular basis a time in our lives to give personal worship to God. We ought to have not only regular times of corporate worship, we ought to have regular times of private worship. The pattern of Scripture is to set aside time daily in one's personal life to worship God. Many of us think of this as a personal devotional time or a quiet time. But the fact of the matter is we on a regular basis need to have a private worship time with God. Corporate worship, public worship, private worship. So that brings me to wrapping this up. What is it that God desires from us in worship? God knows that we know what it means to worship him. God desires that we know how to worship him. And God desires that we know when to worship him. God desires that we understand worshipers, that's who we are. God desires worshipers. Do you want to be part of what God desires? Well, you have an opportunity to become what God desires, a worshiper in spirit and in truth.